0: 988 has been designated as the new three-digit number to connect you to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can reach the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by calling, texting, or chatting with 988. You'll be connected to trained counselors who will listen, strive to understand how your problems are affecting you, provide support, and connect you to resources if necessary. So if you're feeling suicidal, or in crisis, call, text, or chat, 988.
1: Hello, this is Dan Kalak, member of the Palma Band of Lusanyu Indians and the Chief Medical Officer for Indian Health Council over the past 19 years. Myu-yum. May we all wonder and be blessed by the energy created by the life around us, perpetuated and created from our ancestors and their ancestors for time immemorial. We recognize the Creator's hand is all that we see, feel, think, and do here on Earth and in our short existence. We treasure our time together and we wish each other peace, happiness, and long life. For love, health, time is all we have here on Earth. We relish our bodies, minds, spiritual being, and our consciousness. Drinking in our reality with the ones we love and making a good place for our people is paramount. For our Earth, our animal brothers and sisters on Earth, the ocean, the sea, and the unseen that share our space, we treasure your existence. For our children we love, live, and last one more day, if not for ourselves, but for our generations to come forever now on Earth, and to the universe end, Michonne Lovic.
2: Good morning, welcome to our What About Life podcast. I am Beth Turner, Director of Health Promotions and Marketing, filling in for David Dawson on our podcast today. I'd like to introduce some of our guests, starting with our very own Maria.
3: Good morning, everybody. My name is Maria, and I work in health promotions and marketing department here at IHC. And I'm the health educator, so you'll probably see me around in the community a lot.
2: Awesome. Awesome. And then moving to our special guest, Season Good Pastor, who is the founder of Acorns to Oak Trees.
4: Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm the founder of Acorns to Oak Trees, and I'm Maidu Mpiyu and a member of the Susanville Indian Rancheria up in Northern California.
2: Well, thank you for joining us today. I'm so happy to have you on your podcast and really excited to have you tell us all about your organization and the wonderful services they are providing and get that word out to our community members. So I'm going to start off by just asking you to tell us a little bit about your organization and what they do.
4: So Acorns to Oak Trees was inspired by my husband and I's oldest daughter, Harley. Uh, She's on the spectrum. Shortly after Harley's birth, I recognized that she had some early signs of autism uh, because I have my master's in counseling psychology. So I had that develop, child development background. So I saw those signs with her, uh, mentioned different things to her pediatrician. Uh, she called her kind of a zero to 10 baby, uh, wrote it off primarily as just a personality Um trait and didn't look too much further into it because my husband and I didn't have any family history of uh, having a child with intellectual developmental disability. So fast forward to about 10 months old, Harley still wasn't crawling. And so that triggered a referral to a physical therapist. And it wasn't until the physical therapist through Rady's Children um, telling me, you know, you should get her assessed through the regional center. And I was like, What's a regional center? And that was the first time I had heard of it. So she explained what a regional center was and what they did and that they would provide in-home services in areas like speech and occupational therapy and uh, early intervention. And I thought, oh my gosh, if I could get that, because at that point I had a child who could not tolerate you know, a 10 minute drive down the road without getting very, very upset. Driving anywhere was extremely stressful. So having the opportunity to have somebody come in home and provide her services was going to be a game changer for our family. So fast forward about a year later, after getting her services, we're seeing tremendous growth. I had a conversation with her IFSP worker, which stands for Individual Family Service Provider, um, through the regional center, and I was expressing my gratitude to her and just the life-giving services that we had received through the regional center, and I had asked her, you know, well, this is how we found out about the regional center. How do most people find out about the regional center? Because it was just kind of like happened chance that I learned. And she said, well, we primarily rely upon word of mouth. And my jaw dropped. I thought for something as life giving as this life altering, right? How can something like that be left to word of mouth? And I thought that's, that's unacceptable. And I said, that's unacceptable. I said, not to be rude, but that's unacceptable. Like there has to be a better outreach, right? To to families who are struggling. And I said, well, to take it a step further, I said, this is what I do. You know, I'm the director of social services for this high profile tribe, you know, in Southern California. I said, I didn't know about you guys. I said, do you guys have any kind of relationship with tribes? You know, do you go out to the tribal communities? I said, because knowing what I know now, I said, a lot of our families have kids with developmental delays or you know idd and you know as a social worker back then i said there were so many times where i should have referred a family to the regional center but i didn't because i didn't know a regional center even existed so i said if i'm supposed to be referring families they're counting on me and under the federal law Ida of the child find system it clearly states social workers and it mentions tribes and you know that whole outreach part that they that They're obligated to do, the states are obligated to do local education agencies, LEAs, they're supposed to be finding, locating, and evaluating children at risk of, right, developmental delays and disabilities, and so, you know, she said, no, we we don't, we haven't done that, we don't do that, and I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, I, I just thought of all the families that I had come in contact with over the years who I should have made a referral to the regional center, but I didn't, and it's because I didn't know they they existed. So I had worked, like I said, as a ICWA director. And so I had a lot of contacts throughout the state. And so one of them was Jim Swenon. He is the tribal liaison for California Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees DDS. And I always go straight to the top, like if there's a macro level problem like that. So I reached out to Jim and I said, Jim, Here's Harley's story. Here's what I'm seeing. I said, they have to do outreach to tribal communities. There's no tribal representation that's happening on any of the state work groups. You know, there's no you know buy-in for the tribal communities. It's the same thing that we're seeing with ICWA in this whole different arena. And I said, we've got to change it. And he's like, "Season, he's like, you're right. He's like, we know that we need to, you know, something needs to change here, but um, I'm going to put you in contact with Director Bargman and Lenani Walters. Uh, she's the chief equity officer for DDS. So I had a Zoom meeting with them probably a month or two after that. This was in 2001. And I told him about Harley and I told him about my experience and what I saw needed to be done basically. And it was that education and outreach piece, reaching out to tribal communities, establishing that relationship and making sure that they know about the services that are available to their children, right? And a big part of... The reason why that's so important is that early detection, because early detection makes a huge difference in the trajectory of a child's life. So, zero to three is a key window. You know, their early start program is focused on zero to three, but they're relying upon referrals from primarily pediatricians, and that's what they had shared. You know, we primarily, you know, expect pediatricians to make that referral or, you know, for you to know somebody else who has received our services. That was their primary referral source. And so after sharing Harley's story and, you know, just my ideas of what needed to be done, a few months later, I get a call back uh, from Lenani Walters from DDS. And she said, Susan, you know, I want to update you on some changes that we've made since the last time we spoke. And she said, I just want to let you know, because of Harley's story and your advocacy, you know, she's in legislation now. We have changed things. We have dedicated $500,000 in the state's annual budget every year specifically to outreach to tribal communities. And I was blown away because I have worked in the ICWA arena, you know, where we're always fighting with the state to uh, to get somewhere, right, to protect our sovereignty, to make sure our kids are getting the services that they need, and it's always a battle, always, always a battle. And here, for the first time, I go to the state agency, and they're like, you're right. There's no disputing the data. So when they looked at their point of service data, we don't even make up 1% of their, what they call it, POS data, which sounds funny. Um, but it stands for point of service data. And when they looked at that, they saw how few Native Americans were actually being provided services. And they, ha- they said, we, we couldn't ignore that. And so they created their uh, tribal early start outreach program, and I got to be a part of that to, to shape what that looked like. And so through that, I the first thing I wanted to do was to hold listening sessions to hear from families to learn about you know what were those service access and equity barriers, what were the unmet needs that the families were facing. Um, I knew what I experienced as a as a mom you know and what our family had gone through but i wanted to hear from other families because obviously every family is different every need is different and so that was really important to me the other thing that i had in mind and which we did was to have the first native american disability symposium and i got to be the key speaker so the first one of that was held in june last year at saquon and i was able to share our video harley's hope project and that is a video where we share our story about Harley and what we went through and a number of other native families, Chairman Smith um, from Paula, his uh, he and his wife and were able to share their story and we had a, a couple other families and it was just really, really powerful. Um, we got standing ovation at the conference because people, people realize just this area has not been talked about in our tribal communities for lots of reasons. Um, but I think – I think people are so happy that, you know, something is being done now and it's easier to talk about. And I think our video has helped to break down some of the barriers for our tribal families because it's a two-part problem. One, we need to raise awareness to the state agency, right, for the people that are in charge of the money and how outreach is done. They needed to know that it was not working with our community, and that children were being really negatively impacted because of that broken child fine system. And then the second part is how do we change the narrative within the tribal communities about you know disabilities in our communities because again it's not something that you hear a lot of people talk about. It's not something that a lot of us felt comfortable and you know when I look at our story and you know we shared that too and that was the one common thread through all of our stories was we were, we were fearful to bring our children out amongst the community because we were worried about how they would be treated, how we would be perceived. We're so protective of our babies. And that's really sad You know with that we feel like that within our own tribal communities. And that needs to change because our tribal communities need to be one of the safest places that our children and families can be, right? We need to know that if a child elopes, which is very common with autism, that anybody within our tribal community will say, I know that child, that child has autism, that child is nonverbal, that child, you know, is going to have these sensory seeking activities, they're at risk, you know, they're not, you know, mentally ill or, or whatever, and they're taken off to some you know jail or hospital or whatever, they, they will know where that child came from and how to help them. But that is only achieved through education, right? We need to educate our peers and make it a safe place. We can't rely upon the outside world to, to do that for ourselves. So that's one of our big goals of Acorns to Oak Trees is restoring the village and making it one of the safest places that our children can be again. Um, so that's one of the things that I love most about our videos and our outreach events is that we start off by sharing our story in a very raw and vulnerable way because it helps to break down some of those immediate, you know, feelings that people get when you talk about this issue. Nobody really wants to share, but when you see it in a way that we've done it, people, their guards go down and it's really neat to see um, so, so that was done at that first California Native American Disability Symposium. Um, fast forward to where we are today. Uh, one of the big game changers for Acorns to Oak Trees was getting a Tribal Home Visiting Grant through ACF, and that is for the Palopeta Mission Indians. We are creating this. Beautiful uh, in-home kind of pa- early childhood education parenting. It, it starts for pregnant women and young children zero to five, and we will be able to go into the home, provide those early educational services that promote healthy development, that help with identifying risks if your child's not meeting that developmental milestone, and. Uh, We're in our first year, it's a five-year grant. So the first year is community needs and readiness assessment. And we did a huge survey within the Paula community to identify what they identified as their unmet needs. You know, What are the resources that they want? What are the things that would be most meaningful to them? And we're in the process of basically analyzing that data to guide our choice of what home visiting program is gonna make the most sense for this tribal community. So we're really excited about that. And uh, we hope to open that up to other tribal communities. We're going to be in the process of applying for another grant. And we want to include as many tribes in this area, in this Southern California area, who want to be part of it to have a tailored early childhood education program for their communities. Um, So we we want to expand that home visiting program as well. Um, The other exciting program, which is now taking us statewide with our education outreach arm is Harley's Hope Project just got funded for the first ever uh, Native American Community Navigator Program. And what that's going to do is provide technical assistance and resources to families that are needing to access regional center services. If they have trouble getting those services, they need an appeal. Uh, If they want to have somebody from the tri- you know from our tribal organization attend their uh, child's assessment we'd be happy to do so um, as well as those families who want to request an IEP we know that a lot of the time you know our kids are not being identified in that 0 to 3 window so oftentimes it's not until they're school aged mm-hmm. that you're seeing some of those delays right and so by then it's like oh gosh so getting an IEP can be very challenging and I think uh, a, a lot of our families could use a lot of help in that area.
2: So for our audience, can you explain what an IEP is?
4: Yes. So an IEP is an individualized education plan. So under IDA, there's actually, I think there's like four parts. So part C is the early, early side. So zero to three. And then part B is three and older. So if you you miss that early start window then you would be part covered under part b and that means you're working with the school district on working to child uh, working to get a individualized education plan for your child which basically kind of dictates the services and accommodations that they would be entitled to be related to their disability or or you know learning challenges
3: and i really think that's awesome that you guys have that advocacy group because a lot of parents Get scared on how to work with the school district, especially because the school district sometimes gives a lot of pushback, and parents give up. Yes, and it's like, no, you got to keep on fighting for those services, Mm -hmm. for those accommodations for the children. You know, so that's a really neat thing that your program offers. Thank you. Yeah, and that is a great point. They do they they make it
4: challenging, right? And my only thought to that is like it comes down to a resource. They they don't want to be out of pocket for these additional expenses and having an IEP, having these additional services, right? It's all about the dollar. And at Harley's last IEP meeting, you know, like I said, she was pretty much nonverbal up until the age of four. And, you know, I've had to become the expert to know what to do, to know what to push in those IEP meetings and make those requests. And at her last IEP meeting, I said, I shouldn't have to do those things. If you see my child as, struggling in an area and something could benefit them and she's got this diagnosis, then that should just be an automatic, right? I shouldn't have to know what to ask, you know, ask that golden question, ask the right question or push for the right thing to, to get her what she needs. It should be automatic. If a child is going to benefit from a service and you know that they're delayed, just give it to them.
2: Oh no. I, I mean, I totally agree and identify what you're discussing with having a um, 20 year old daughter, That's on the spectrum as well. My journey just dealing with the regional center and the school district uh, was very challenging. Having to reapply to the regional center multiple times and then leverage the school district for an IEP and then advocate for a fair and appropriate public education. And I think a lot of people out in the community aren't aware of how to do that mm-hmm. let alone all the rules and regulations and people are just trying to get services for their kids i mean we love our children and we want the best for them
4: right it's a full time it has become a full time job for me to help other families but when you think about all the other things that our families are faced with right you know this is just one area We know that substance abuse, domestic violence, mental health, these are all things that our families are faced with. So, you know, sometimes people just don't have the capacity to fight this battle. It's not that they don't care, but they just don't have the capacity to fight the battle. So what do we do in those instances? I feel like sometimes the school districts take advantage of the fact that parents don't know. They don't know what their rights are. They don't know what's available to the child. And if they don't know, then they're off the hook.
2: And like you shared a lot of the school district, it it is about money and it is about resources. And it's kind of like, um, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the attention. And if you sit back and you don't know what to do or how to get services, the school district will tend to just pass your child through.
4: Exactly. And I mean, historically, we don't have to look too far in our history to see that, you know, historically, schools have not been a safe place for our families, right? Right. That's, that's very common knowledge, right, with a boarding school. So when you think about the the knowledge and the history that's been passed down through generation, you know, if you're a child, just think of this of this child, and this is, I don't know if you've heard of that study that, uh, that was done. It's basically called Pipeline to Prison, and it talks about how schools are basically just a pipeline for Native children to prison. And when you think about it, at least through the lens that I think about it, you take these kids who you know, were failed to be identified through the child find system, right? They were, they were failed. And now they're going into kindergarten for the first time and they're so far behind their peers, you know? And it's through no fault of their own and they're struggling with just basic stuff, right? And then that starts to create, you know, some isolation for that child. They're going to struggle. You're going to see those behavioral defiances and it's because they they can't fit in, right? They can't do what they're typically developing peers or, and maybe they don't even have IDD, but they just have significant delays because they didn't get the services or the resources that they needed. Well, they're going to start to grow an aversion to school. You're going to see that. And that's only going to be fostered by an educational system that is not equipped to meet their needs. And that's, pretty much what I've seen. A lot of the schools, you know, they, they don't know how to provide information or to, to work with native families in a culturally safe and competent way. So our, our parents, right off the bat, a lot of the times don't feel safe or equipped to go to their school and say, hey, you know, my kid's struggling in this area, what can you do, what can be done? um because they're they're a lot of the times feel like they're being judged and they're just already at a disadvantage. So then when you're met with you know that opposition, right? You're met with pushback right off the gate. That's kind of setting the tone for the rest of that child. They're not going to be quick to push their kid to go to that school to go to you know to go to school every day, to go to the classroom because they don't feel like it's a safe place for their child. So why are they going to be fighting to send their kid to to class every day if they feel like they're not being taken care of emotionally, you know, physically, educationally, all the things, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, completely understandable. I mean, and then that child has all those sensory integration issues that are going right? on yes. where like maybe the tags on their clothing are bothering them mm-hmm. or they can hear the clock ticking in the classroom and that's all they can hear or they're covering their ears because they're overstimulated by the noises. And then like you mentioned, commonly a lot of these kids will elope. So they're running out of the classroom Mm -hmm. and you know, how do we help these children? What do we do for them so that they can be in a safe and comfortable environment because they are capable of learning. Right. They just need the right accommodations and the right setting and to be given that support system.
4: Right, and most teachers don't have the background, you know, when it comes to understanding what some of those sensory-seeking behaviors and sensory-avoiding behaviors are. So they're writing it off as just behavioral, you Mm -hmm. know, lack poor parenting, they weren't disciplined, you know, parents are checked out, they're writing it off as a parent problem or just a child problem, when in fact it's pointing to a much larger issue. So a lot of the times, you know, again, it points to just that broken child find system because teachers are part of that child find system too. But again, if they don't have enough knowledge to be able to look at the child and say, okay this is what that child actually needs, that child's not going to get the services,
3: right? Yeah, I really like that you bring that up because I know a lot of students um, aren't properly diagnosed or have not been diagnosed and they get stereotyped or coded as the quote-unquote bad kid, right? right? Because of the behavior problems. And, you know, that's where that push again. Having that IEP, you know, can my child get that diagnosis to see the school psychologist. And then within that, it's like the timeframes like we were talking about earlier and it's just that pushback from the schools, you know? And it's very, you need it. You really need those services. And I just, I'm so amazed and I love that you're bringing this program to life um, in many different aspects and many different avenues. You know, not only, you know, the advocacy within the groups, but also the in-home services. I think that's huge, especially for out here in the community. Um, back in the day, I used to do ABA therapy, you know. So it, it's it, it makes such a huge difference, you know, when you go into servicing these families mm-hmm. and working with the kids because it also gives – the parent's a nice little break. And I think that's another Amen thing. to, to that. To, I remember those yes. days. I
4: would be so excited when Harley's ABA, you know, early intervention worker would come and I would just think, okay, I can do the dishes or I can make, you know, lunch or whatever. It's just these little things that, you know, it's just a little break, mm-hmm. a little break where you know your child is safe, where they're getting educational services, you know. And sometimes they, even though I had the knowledge to work with Harley in different ways, like it was just different when she came in. Right. Made such a big difference. And just
3: the vast variety of services that the school can offer as well. That's not, like you can have ABA services within the classroom. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just advocating. And as a parent not knowing that you can have those services, it's like you would have never know that you can push for that. You know, so it's like you said, the importance of educating the community of the types of services, a variety of types of services, how to get them filling out that paperwork, which can be so overwhelming, is big, too. Yes. So to that
4: point, we're creating an IEP toolkit, which basically is going to provide parents with a, a template that pretty much all they have to do is plug in their name and, you know, basically information into this letter and we give them step-by-step step on, you know, submit it to the school, and then this is basically a flowchart. So if they're denied, go this route. If, you know, they set an IEP meeting, go this route. Um, and then that's part of our community navigator program where we will provide assistance pretty much every step of the way. If they, uh, rate, you know, come into those challenges, we'll be able to help them. Um, to your other point, of helping the communities and families understand kind of what those services are, that's one of the most recent projects that we're working on. So one of the things that I had put in our uh, scope of work that we would be doing this this year is creating a essentially an early start video. The state did a really cool one; I really liked it, but I wanted to, you know, make it a tribal one, a native one. And so we are going to be shooting next week and the following week, actually Dr. Kalak um, from Indian Health Council is going to be part of that video. But we're going to be talking about the importance of early detection, early intervention, and sharing what some of those services actually look like. So, you know, prior to Harley, again, occupational therapy, I probably would have thought that it was something like a job service, right? Mm -hmm. Helping somebody find out what occupation
3: they want to be in. Occupational therapy has nothing to do with that. (laughs) Nope. It's more of like figuring out basic life skills and how to get through life throughout your day. It can be as easy as putting on a sweater, yes, you know? exactly. Yeah, self-care, all those things, and
4: a lot of things related to sensory that I had no idea. And there's a huge tie between occupational therapy and mental health. Occupational therapy actually started off as a um, – it, it was really tied into mental health. It was a form of mental health treatment. So I had no idea about that. But yeah, so we're going to be sharing about what occupational therapy looks like, providing examples. I'm going to be using the clinicians that I have um, in our clinic to to show what those different services look like. So parents kind of know they're not going to be caught off guard when you know, re- you're working on a different exercise. Um, so it'll be pretty cool.
2: And like you said, with the Occupational therapy, developing those fine motor skills, and helping that child be able to, as simple as like button their clothing, right? Use a zipper, hold their serving utensils, yes. Um, you know, cutting food, mm-hmm. which can be very challenging at times. All the
4: things that you know, your average person takes for granted. Yes, yes. all those fine motor skills. You know, Harley, she's the main one that I always kind of look back to using a fork, using a spoon, I remember thinking like, how great will it be one day when she's able to feed herself, you uh-huh. know, because she she did not have the mechanism to like tilt her head back to drink water. And same thing for, you know, the the fruit pouches and things like that. Which she was on a puree food diet until she was almost three years old. She did not have the mechanism, didn't know how to chew her food. Um and that's a thing that I hear a lot from families too. So occupational therapy was huge for us. So really excited to open that up to other families that service. And, um, of course we always have, you know, cultural adaptation. So uh, I love bringing horses and ecotherapy into our programming whenever possible. So we actually have, it's called hippotherapy and that's where you use the horse to work with the child and when you're trying to teach them different movements and things like that. So, um, we're able to offer that as well. And then speech therapy, is that something that you guys offer? So I, we will, um, I do, I found an amazing speech and language pathologist. She actually worked with Harley when she was little. She works for the school district now, um, and she accepted the position, but they would not let her out of her contract. So she's going to be starting in June. Uh, she's bilingual, which is, they pretty much makes her gold. Um, so she will be available to start working with
2: uh,
4: our organization in June.
2: Yeah, it's really wonderful. Like you mentioned, the, just that early intervention and getting these services out in the community when the child is at a young age, because it's going to make them more successful as an adult right. and help them in their journey.
4: Exactly. Yep. So we want to be able to, you know, work with the school districts. We know that they contract out for a lot of those services. So that's kind of one of our goals is to eventually be able to be one of the people that they contract with. You know, a lot of the schools here are very close by to our organization. You know, we're located in so, And if it's working with Native kids, who better to do it than a Native organization?
2: Definitely. Now, you had also mentioned maybe play therapy or behavioral health therapy.
4: Yes, yeah, so we offer um, play therapy. We do uh, DIR Floor Time. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Everything is play based. Obviously, we're working with kids, so uh, very play based uh, ABA, so Applied Behavioral Analysis, um, and yeah. So those are those are kind of the main play therapy type services that we offer. And again, um, we've we've got the. Various farm animals there, which the kids love. And it's really, I love getting them outdoors because they just, it uses all their senses. And it just, it's really neat to see them interact with the animals. Very therapeutic.
2: Yeah, and a lot of times in a more open environment, it's like for these children, they have so much space and freedom and, you know, they're not confined and you truly see their personalities come out.
4: Yeah, no, exactly. So one exciting thing, which I don't want to like jinx myself, but we were contacted by uh, this show, Um, I can't remember the name, but basically they will come and do a build in five days, and it's to really help, you know, provide a service to whatever the community needs, and so I had brought up, it would be so nice to have a multi-purpose building, uh, because a lot of our kids have those really strong sensory-seeking behaviors, and swinging is a big part of it, and they make multiple different kinds of swings, but you need a good space, right, to do it. And same thing for, like, climbing equipment and, you know, having a crash pad and, you know, also hosting community outreach events. So that was one thing that I pitched to them. Like, the community could really benefit from having a space like this where it could be used for multiple purposes, from therapeutic to just community events.
2: That's so wonderful. And having those services closed so people aren't traveling.
4: Yes. Yeah. I can definitely speak as, you know, somebody who had to – Drive for different services for Harley at times. Really, just occupational therapy. But driving in a car sometimes with a child that has a lot of sensory issues, like it is traumatizing. Harley was my first child, and I remember thinking, like, pulling over sometimes because she was so upset, like literally gagging herself. And I'm thinking, like, how do I, how do I drive down the road, hearing my child, like, is she? You know, is she breathing? Is she going to, you know, what what's going to happen if she makes herself throw up? Like you it's debilitating to some degree to not be able to feel like you can just drive somewhere, be out in the, in the, and then too sensory, um, back to the sensory stuff. Her bottles had to be a certain temperature, which meant like I got really good at knowing how long I needed to heat the water, how I was going to store the water, how long it would stay hot and, you know, all those things, you know, people, my husband, which if you, if you watch our video, my husband and I came from two very different uh, points of view for Harley, you know, early on, he looked at me like you are creating a monster with us, you know, with Harley, you know, you're just making things way more challenging than it needs to be. And, you know, quit analyzing her because of my background. And I'm like, no, like there, there's something here. It's, it's more than that. And so she ended up uh, going to the hospital. She got back-to-back colds and um she just wasn't eating. You know, again to kind of the sensory stuff. She she just was completely overwhelmed with her system and not and you know when they with an autistic child a lot of the times they don't respond to cues like you and I do. I'm hungry. I need this. I'm thirsty. I need this. And if I don't get this, then I, you know, it's not good. Harley it, sh- it just it didn't matter. You know, she wasn't She wasn't responding to anything. And so it wasn't until she ended up in the hospital that my husband, you know, said, like, it wasn't until she ended up there that I was willing to go there in my mind and admit that something was different with Harley. And I feel like that is something that a lot of our families can relate to and understand. Um, And even even the medical staff, this is what blows my mind. So here, you know, this is my husband who, you know, knows, loves Harley, um, you know, he's not a doctor, but at the same time, I had doctors who should know more about autism recommending things like, you know, cause she got hypoglycemic. Well, just give her some juice. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> you know, okay. Well, if I could get her to drink juice, if I could get her to eat candy, which she can barely chew, but you know, yeah, I thought of those things, but this is a child who doesn't like sugar. She will only drink water and she will only eat these three things. That's not an option.
2: Yes. And then you add to that if a child's speech is still developing, that are nonverbal or they're missing the social cues or simple things, they don't know how to tell you they're hungry or they're thirsty.
4: Right. Or their head hurts or right. their stomach hurts. Yeah. It's really, it can be scary.
2: Uh huh. Yeah. And then, like you said, as a parent, you know, it's refreshing to speak to someone that also has a child on the spectrum is that the parent, we become full time caretakers mm-hmm. and service coordinators. Yes. And it can become overwhelming as I'm sure you have ex- experienced as well.
4: Yeah. So our twins actually, so we've got four kiddos and our twins, they're going to be two in a couple of weeks and they both qualified for early start services. And I got them started pretty early on, which, you know, one of them needs a little bit more services than the other, but um, yeah, between the three kiddos, just coordinating their services and care, it's like, and then obviously running the organization, it's a lot. Um, that's
3: why I made a career out of it at this point Um, yeah do you think you would probably at one point offer respite services I'm glad you brought that up
4: (laughs) so um, we know and I know personally I Harley gets 30 hours of respite care a week I was put in contact with the company that provides it up in Temecula so Temecula is not rural right Temecula is pretty um, populated and Mm -hmm kind of an affluent area. Well, I had somebody show up one time and one time only. And after that, the company kept calling and canceling because they didn't have anybody to provide respite care. And that, you know, they just said, you know, we will contact you when somebody is available in your area. It's been over a year now and I've not heard back from them. So, you know, there's what they're really trying to do is to to have – the family identify their respite worker. So you can you can appoint somebody. If you know somebody within your family, they can be respite. They All they have to do is go through, um, you know, like a background and, and get registered with a company, and then they can actually be a respite worker and get paid that way. But kind of going back to the need of um, restoring the village and, and, and restoring our support system here in tribal communities – we don't feel comfortable leaving our child with just anybody. People need to be familiar enough with your child where you feel where you can leave them, right? And mm-hmm. so that's that's not easy. So my plan is, is to do some training for, for families to get familiar with the various needs of, of, of children with special needs, so they feel more confident in providing some of those services. Um, And I think, too, the more that we feel comfortable to bring our children out to community events and be around everybody, then more people will get to know. And it will become less of a, you know, taboo thing to talk about or it's just it's going to be more commonplace. They're going to be around just as much as everybody else. And the community is going to be more equipped to respond to those needs and and hopefully fulfill those respite cares. But, yes, we do want to be able to provide respite services and I had just applied for another grant which would actually um provide again I'm trying to create a program that I'm like I know what I need so I know what other people will benefit too. uh to provide community respite days so basically a a, a family could Drop their child off, and that child will get therapeutic services, play therapy, all those different things. So they're not; it's not somebody just babysitting your child. They will actually get very beneficial things throughout the day, and they know they can drop the child off, knowing that they've got a whole team, a whole village of people that know what they need. You've got occupational therapists, you've got speech and language pathologists, you've got ABA, you know, therapists. Everybody that your child could possibly need is going to be there, and we're going to know how to take care of your child you can have peace of mind and you know just have a day of self care because that's so important it's makes a huge difference right i can't
3: stress that enough when i was doing aba i remember seeing some of my parents they were so stressed i'm like i think we should get you a respite because mm-hmm. it is important because yes. you want to also as a parent be able to provide that quality care in home for your child yes and you have to sometimes take a step back and Realign yourself, you know, and work on your self care as well. And then, you know, it's like, okay, I'm gonna be a parent now. I'm back. Yeah. And I think it's also important too for parents to not feel that parent guilt
4: mm-hmm. that
3: comes with getting a respite.
4: Yeah. You and know, I mean, a lot of our kids. I don't know, Beth, if you uh, went through this, but there's often times, you know, where their sleep schedule gets you know, messed up. And they're up late or up at the crack of dawn. Harley had this period of time where she was up between four and 430 every day. And, you know, and then at the time I had twins who were, you know, waking up throughout the night and I would get between two and four hours of sleep a night. And I'm just like, you feel just so exhausted, right? And you don't want to be quick tempered or anything like that. You, can only, you can't pour from an empty cup. So it's really important that parents are able to get a break and able to practice self-care. And literally sometimes self-care is just like taking a bath or going to the grocery store by mm-hmm. yourself or you know, whatever it is. It's so important.
2: Yes. Yeah, it is important. I mean, I've definitely experienced that. I still have my child getting up at six wanting to know what's going to happen every moment of the day. Yes. Um, but, you know, even like, your relationship with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, spending having spent time as a couple, mm-hmm. um, uninterrupted time, that respite is so important. And, you know, respite is a service that can be offered through the regional center. Um, but certainly during the pandemic, I personally experienced, you know, respite services more limited, not as many workers, Right. you know, not as many people coming into the home. Mm-hmm. And so caretakers need that self-care because you need to work on your own mental health so you can extend you know that love and nurturing to your to your child
4: right and going back to what you were saying about you know just the importance of having alone time for your relationships right like you know your significant other that is a huge part of your support system you know oftentimes oh, I, I feel so bad for single parents because we just know right they're a lot of it they're going through this on their own but for the ones that have a significant other, like you are gonna be each other's biggest support system, you know, and you need to have those breaks as a couple to, to just have those moments. You need those moments to recharge and, you know, get back to your baseline.
2: Yes. But I would like to add, I mean, I think there's, a, having been in the middle of this journey still, there is a lot of hope out there. Yes. So I was fortunate. I was able to get early intervention services for my daughter, and it started as a speech delay. So my husband and I are thinking our child will never talk. Like, she would make noises, had a lot of sensory issues, a lot of sounds, a lot of, like, extending her hands and pointing to things because she couldn't communicate mm-hmm. what she wanted. Um but now she talks excessively. <laughs> so at the age of five with a child in kindergarten that couldn't communicate to now having a 20-year-old that has really improved her communication skills, um, it's refreshing to know because I think if I hadn't gotten those early services, we wouldn't be where we are, are at now.
4: Right? I, I can That resonates so much with me because I remember early on with Harley, like, those looming questions, right? Is she ever going to talk? Is she ever going to walk? And I think that's kind of the unexpected gift that I got from all this, all those things that a lot of people take for granted that your child is just going to do X, Y, and Z. Well, when your child – when that looks – start to look different, you know, and you're faced with the fact of, like, that might not happen – and it's heartbreaking, you know. You kind of go through this loss and almost like down the rabbit hole of like, what is life going to be like? And kind of similar to what you experienced. Like I said, Harley was nonverbal for the most part um, up until this past year, and now she she repeat not that everybody could understand what she says, but she pretty much repeats everything. And I just think I always remind myself, um, you know, when she is asking questions or is wanting, you know, to talk, you know, and even my two year old who is typically developing, you know, and she's nonstop. And I just remember thinking, like, don't take that for granted because not everybody is going to, you know, to have a child that is able to to talk, right? So it is a, a gift, this perspective that we've been given of just do not take anything for granted and celebrate everything. Every little thing is a gift that your child is able to do.
2: Yeah, like you said, a gift. I mean, we had a social worker... That came out to the home and just kind of stepped out the process of taking a shower. And it sounds so simple, but, you know, being able to undress yourself and go in the shower and what are the steps to washing yourself or using shampoo or using conditioner that my daughter was unable to do that right. until we got that support. Mm-hmm.
4: Yep. All those day to day tasks that we take for granted of just like I said, you know, those self-care things, daily, daily things to take care of yourself, prepare food, eat food, um, say like just safety things. Right. That's a huge thing for us. I don't know if you went through all that. I'm sure you did. But, you know, just not knowing like I shouldn't stick my hand in fire and I should, you know, I shouldn't be climbing on this thing that's about to topple over and. All these things that again you know at some point your child kind of learns you know t- to not do those things. I feel like I don't know I'm gonna ask you does that does that change? has that changed for you are you still always on high alert for your twenty year old because you know they it just doesn't register with them
2: it we did have to go through that transition. And now, fortunately, a lot of it resonates. Um, You know, just we had to go through that process of learning how to cross the street, mm-hmm. looking both ways, making sure there's not a curb and tripping. Yes. And then the whole stranger danger, I think, particularly if you have a child that's a female as a mom, that's like on my mind. Like, Mm -hmm. is she gonna be in a position where she may be lured into a car or a vehicle or be told like, hey, you wanna, you know, help me with my puppy, come here. So you worry about predators as well.
4: Right, no, you bring up a great point and that was something that I was talking um, to some of my, my friends and colleagues about is that, you know, we know that MMIW is a huge thing, right? Um, mmip well our population is very very vulnerable to that even more so you know you think about the risk factors like you said they just they're just way more likely to become victimized in one way or another but
2: yeah i think being you know gullible yes yes and a particularly a child that may not have a lot of friends and is like finally starting to build some social interactions and Mm -hmm. then somebody that may be interested in them, but they may be interested in them obviously for other reasons.
4: Right, yeah, exactly.
2: And I think also just mentioning that these children also grow into adults. So I am dealing now with a transition of a 20 year old. So services at the school district they end at the age of 21. So there's a whole process that you have to go through with the regions that are called self-determination. Yep. <laughs> and just myself now trying to understand that process and what I need to do as a parent. And I just love the quote that you have on your uh, website that the mightiest oak tree was once a little acorn that held his ground. And I can totally like identify that now because my my little you know my little uh, acorn is grown into a tree <laughs> right so
4: to, to build upon that and that's one of the things that I had um, in my uh, opening for the first California Native American Disability Symposium was I love the analogy of the acorn and it talks about how an acorn if kept in a two foot pot will never grow into the mighty oak tree that it was designed to be and it's mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with the acorn. It was solely because of the environment. It wasn't given the environment that it needed. And so when I look at our, our kids, that's what I think of, you know? There's so much potential in each one. Each one. And if if we don't give them what they need, then they're never going to grow into, right? You know, who who they have the possibility to become. So it's our responsibility to help each other, help our families get what they need to help their children grow.
2: Exactly, and like you said, it, it takes a village and it takes the awareness.
4: Right, yes, absolutely.
2: So what would be kind of like your message to parents out there or family members that have children that they're noticing there may be some issues with intellectual or developmental disabilities?
4: My advice would be to don't ignore them. It's better to be safe and, you know, ask for that assessment, get that assessment for your child and roll it out. If they don't qualify for services, great. You know, that's a a good thing. But if they do qualify for services, get it. And I know, you know, sometimes there's shame or guilt or whatever, you know, that a parent can experience. But look at it as like this. It's like free in-home tutoring, you know, free private tutoring for your child and who doesn't want to, you know, get that for their kiddo. Um, it takes just a 25% delay in one or more cal- categories to qualify for early start services. So take advantage of it. It's a free service and honestly it can change the trajectory of your whole child's life. So really, really important to, to do that.
2: And then how would people get in touch with your program and your services?
4: So you can find more information about our website at www.acorns2oak.com, or you can reach me at 760-638-9668.
2: Well, thank you. That's some great information. And like I said, I'm just so thrilled that you guys have this program and the program is growing and all the services that you're looking to have kind of almost like in a centralized location. And so as a parent that is just, you know, wonderful and looking at dropping off those kids and having those support services available to them in a safe environment and also having that cultural perspective.
4: Right. Yeah. It's a, It's definitely a game changer for our, our tribal communities. And it's something that has been needed for a long time, but has never really been talked about. So we're really excited to be kind of leading the charge in that area and You know, we're really um, building strong relationships with Indian Health Services, so across the state, with Department of Developmental Services, with regional centers. I definitely want to give a plug to uh, Mark Klaus, who's the executive director of San Diego Regional Center. And he's been there for just over a year now, but he, between him and the head people at DDS, like they are the reason why our organization has been able to survive this first year because it is expensive. Um, and they have provided so much assistance in their whole vendorization process. That was the other thing. We're the first um, native organization to get vendored with a regional center, which is. That's big, right? It's That's huge. Right? That's, yes. big. That's that so, is. so huge. Yeah. yeah. So, so exciting. We're very proud of that. And You know, I don't want to say I couldn't have done it without him, but he made it a lot easier. And he they have a heart. I think that's one thing that that's the biggest thing. It's very clear that key people in some leadership roles, whether it be at the State Department of DDS or, you know, I, I can speak, you know, for San Diego Regional Center. They're wanting to help. And that is a great place to start. Let's create this model program right down here in Southern California. And that's our plan to create this model program that we can spread throughout the state and we are doing that with our uh, community navigator program where we have an office in central california we're partnering with indian child and family preservation program which is a consortium of six six tribes there and then also in northern california uh in susanville which is my hometown so between those two locations my plan is to be able to expand services all of our services to those other locations as well
3: I like it. Do you mind just going over one more time um, the type, all the services that you will be providing?
4: Yes. So right now we do education and outreach. So we'll do events where we share Harley's Hope Project, our storytelling video, which is aimed to increase awareness about the high rates of IDD. So we have the highest rates of IDD out of any other ethnicity in the nation. Um, So it's really important that we raise awareness with families, tribal leaders about those things. Um, so that's what we do with our community outreach events. And then also our community navigator program, which provides uh, resources and information and technical assistance to families needing assistance with accessing regional center services or requesting an IEP through the school district. And then uh, locally here in Southern California, our office is located in Paula. In there, we can provide occupational therapy, ABA play therapy, equine therapy, and soon speech uh, and language therapy in June. So those are the main services that we provide currently. Perfect, thank you.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you, Susan, so much for joining us. I mean, I just can feel your passion about all this. So uh, kudos to you for founding this program because as a parent of a child um, that is on the spectrum, I mean, you truly get it. You know what services are needed for our community and our children and you're building those. And I just think, um, again, it's so inspiring.
4: Thank you. And that was the conversation that I had with Leinani the other day. I said, you know, I have been given a platform and I have such a unique perspective because I am a parent of a child with special needs. So I know what my needs are. But then at the same time, I've been given this opportunity to create the program, right, to, to respond to what those needs are. You know, we've got a lot of people who, you know, complain, you know, or don't complain, and that doesn't change anything. Um, I know not everybody is wired the way that I am. People are always like, I don't know how you do it, but it needs to be done, right? And for whatever reason, you know, God has put me in a position to to create the program that I've done, and I'm just really blessed and grateful that um, this has become my mission. It was never part of what I thought I was going to be doing one day, but um, I can't imagine my life any other way now. This is way bigger than me, and I'm so happy it's going to help so many other families.
3: Yeah, I would just want to say thank you too, as well. Um- I think from my perspective as being a child that grew up having an IEP and having a parent that was a huge advocate, I think these type of services, and especially bringing them here, is going to make such a big change. And you're paving the way for something great. And I'm just excited to see everything unfold and see how it goes. And yeah. <laughs> Thank you so like, much. There's no words to express <laughs> it, but it's amazing. Thank you're you. You're doing really good work here. Thank you.
2: Uh, yes. In closing, just to say, Susan, I, I see this program as just truly a gift mm-hmm. and it's a gift you're giving to others.
3: Thank
4: you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the What About Life podcast from Indian Health Council. Please take a moment and make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single new episode. The views and opinions expressed by those interviewed on the What About Life podcast, including all program participants, are solely their own current opinions regarding events and are based on their own perspective and opinion. It is the opinion and perspective of the interviewees and the hosts. Such views, opinions, and or perspectives are intended to convey a life story or based on recollections about events in their lives on which conflicting memories may exist and are not intended to malign any individual, religion, ethnic group, or company. The views and opinions expressed do not reflect the views or opinions of Indian Health Council, Inc., or the companies with which any program participants, interviewees are or may be affiliated. The What About Life podcast is a production of the Health Promotions and Marketing Department at Indian Health Council and is funded through the Prevention and Early Intervention Program from the County of San Diego HHSA Mental Health Services Act. What About Life is produced and edited by David S. Dawson executive produced by Beth Turner. This episode of What About Life is the copyright of Indian Health Council, Inc.